It's important because we don't know what the future holds for us. We plan our estates and create wills and trusts because we know at some point we will pass on. We don't know if before our death we will undergo a period of incapacity. And if we do have incapacity, we need somebody to act as our agent. We need somebody to act on our behalf. Welcome to Financially Ever After Widowhood, the podcast where we empower women to take control of their financial future after the loss of a spouse. I'm your host, Stacey Francis, President and CEO of Francis Financial, an award-winning and nationally recognized financial advisory firm. With the help of incredible guests, I'm ready to guide you through this challenging transition. Our special guest is someone that I was able to see live in action at the Estate Planning Council Day, speaking about powers of attorney and the pitfalls you need to protect yourself against. And I knew he would be perfect as a guest here on Financially Ever After Widowhood. Brian Corrigan, he focuses on trust and estate and fiduciary litigation. He has represented clients in a variety of surrogates courts matters, included contested wills, contested accounting, fiduciary removal, fiduciary surcharge, and well, I'll have to tell you everything Jersey Housewives that you could ever imagine. He knows what he's talking about. And as a partner at Farrell Fritz Law Firm here in New York, he has seen it all. And make sure you wait till the end where he talks about the most important considerations you need to make when choosing your power of attorney and more importantly, how to make sure that you are protected if unfortunately one of those power of attorneys goes rogue. Without further ado, please help me welcome our special guest today, Brian Corrigan. Brian, it is fantastic to have you here. I know that talking about power of attorney, sometimes called attorney at fact, is not for some people the most exciting things. But I have to tell you, for all of you listeners out there, the things that can go wrong with naming the wrong power of attorney, it's like a really tough rerun from Jersey Housewives. So you do want to be listening today. And I'm so excited that you're here, Brian, to Give us the ABCs, the words of caution, the words of advice to make sure that choosing that power of attorney is the right choice for you. Thank welcome, you so welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I know that you deal with this day in and day out. I spoke a little bit about a power of attorney or attorney at fact. Are they the same thing? Because you see those terms and I've actually seen them sometimes even used interchangeably, but are they really the same thing? They are. Most people in common parlance will refer to themselves as the power of attorney. And the power of attorney really is the document itself. It's the instrument. But the power of attorney is synonymous with the attorney, in fact, and it's synonymous with the agent. The most common term we use and the term that's in the power of attorney statute in New York is agent. So when we talk about the power of attorney, it's a matter of law, we're referring to the agent and the maker of the power of attorney is the principal. So it's a classic agency relationship. The principal confers power on an agent to do certain acts. Got it. And that power of attorney, what would they be doing? 
Why would you be choosing a power of attorney? Why is that important? It's important because we don't know what the future holds for us. We plan our estates and create wills and trusts because we know at some point we will pass on. We don't know if before our death, we will undergo a period of incapacity. And if we do have incapacity, we need somebody to act as our agent. We need somebody to act on our behalf. We need somebody to act on our behalf in two respects. First, a personal medical capacity, somebody to make decisions for us with regard to our healthcare. And that's a healthcare proxy. That healthcare proxy is another agent, but the scope of their agency is really limited to matters concerning the person and medical care. Healthcare proxy has no say over anything related to property or finances. And that's why the power of attorney or the agent under the power of attorney becomes so important. Having a power of attorney in place will allow somebody to act on your behalf for financial matters if and when you do become unable to do so yourself. And I will tell you, we just had a situation where a client was very ill, went into the hospital, could not make any financial decisions for herself. She was actually in a coma and she had nominated her daughter as the power of attorney to be able to pay her bills, pay her mortgage. But one of the things that I have heard of, and this actually happened, her daughter had difficulty having the bank accept that document of the power of attorney. And they were telling her, no, 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 sorry, you have to use our own form. That created kind of a circular effect because our client wasn't available, right, to execute a new form. Does this happen very often? And Brian, what can you do to make sure that your power of attorney doesn't run into this? The situation that you referenced, Stacey, is unfortunately a fairly common one where it could be a perfectly good power of attorney executed by the principal when they had capacity by their longstanding lawyer appointing somebody they trust implicitly. Yet when a third party, such as a bank, is called upon to accept that power, they refuse. And the most common instance is it's not our form. It's not mm-hmm. yeah. National Bank of Whoville form. And that's the only form we'll acknowledge. So what happens in that instance is Unfortunately, the agent ought to now, at the principal's expense, get an attorney involved. And the New York law was changed about two years ago to address this specific situation. Prior Mm -hmm. to two years ago, if a third party, such as a bank, was refusing to accept a power of attorney, there really was no downside to them to doing so. They could simply say no, because it's not our form, which is an unreasonable basis to refuse to accept a power of attorney. But another basis is it's stale. It was executed 10 years ago and we're only being called upon to accept it now. Well, of course, the principle is fine for the past 10 years. Why would you be called upon to accept it? So the law was changed two years ago to address this situation. And what the change in the law provides is that if a third party, such as a bank, unreasonably refuses to accept a power of attorney, And now the agent needs to file a petition in court to compel that third party to accept it. If the court finds that that bank or other third party acted unreasonably and not our form is unreasonable, then in that instance, the court can direct that third party to pay damages, including the attorney's fees that the agent had to incur to get the third party to accept that power. And that's a flip of, quote, the American rule on legal fees, which is regardless of victory or outcome, each side pays his or her own freight. 
I've seen it just in the past two years, Stacey. I've seen it a little bit of a sea change when a bank yeah. will yeah. adhere to that prior practice and you write the letter, you get the right person on the line and you say, look, are you aware that the law has changed? And if you continue to go down this road, you could face this exposure. Fortunately, I've not had to go to court on this yet, though the change in the law has had enough of a consequence to get the desired change. Mm -hmm. I have to say financial institutions behaving badly. One of the best ways to curb that behavior is to have legal fees and fines and things like that. When you talk about having to actually go to court, Brian, what is the time frame? Because I'll tell you what I'm thinking about as a financial planner is, okay, the mortgage is not being paid. Credit card interest is accruing. It makes my heart palpitate. Now, I know that I'm a little on the OCD end of being on top of bills because of my job. I'm just going to admit that. But what is the time frame we're talking about from not having that formally accepted to actually getting a legal decision forcing the financial institution to accept it? That's a good question. Most of us who hear about litigation and who are engaged in the practice of law hear about cases that drag on forever. And matrimonial actions are the type of litigation that most of us who will face litigation in our life will hear about. And those can go on for quite some time. So whenever people hear about litigation, Stacey, they think that, oh my God, it could be years. I assure them that no, it's not in this particular instance. Whenever a third party is called upon to accept a power of attorney and they unreasonably refuse to do so, the law in New York allows for expedited release. It allows for what we call a special proceeding to be commenced in court. And that, by its very nature, gets you before a judge on a fast track. It removes certain things that stall cases like discovery. Got it. The judge has to expressly authorize discovery. And when you think about it, if the only reason the bank is declining to accept the power is it's not our form, you don't need factual discovery into that. You don't need depositions. So the judge can simply yeah. say to himself or herself, well, wait a minute, that's not a reasonable basis. We can set this down for a hearing or I can dispose of this right now. So to address your concerns and those who may share your concerns that, oh my goodness, I'm going to be tied up in litigation for years if somebody needs to be called upon to accept the power. No, it gets teed up very quickly right. and gets decided very quickly. So can a power of attorney, though, take advantage of you? I've read many articles, and I've actually unfortunately seen it firsthand, the amount of elder abuse. It's on the rise. I've seen it with clients being abused by their children who might be taking advantage of them. Can this happen with a power of attorney as well? Absolutely. Sadly, it is a common occurrence in my litigation practice where we find unscrupulous agents acting under a power of attorney. Sometimes it's discovered while the principal is still alive. Mm -hmm. More often than not, we discover it after the principal has passed. So to the hypothetical you posed before, that if it's a child acting in a less than honorable way on behalf of, let's say, mom, then mom passes and let's say one of the other siblings is named as the executor of mom's estate or even the agent herself, let's say the bad agent is named as executor. What you can then do is, if you represent one of the other siblings, is you can have complete transparency on whatever that person acting as agent during mom's lifetime did in that capacity. That's when we learn, we start by simply asking for bank statements. Let's see the bank statements and the canceled checks. Because if they're all Where going the money to own healthcare yep. provider, the utilities and the mortgage, okay, it all seems above board. But you know it when you see it when it comes to certain things. It could be very sizable cash withdrawals when you know the home health care aid is being paid by check or okay. flat out wires to the account belonging to the agent. And then 
right there, you know, you need to go further and, and then commence a proceeding now after the principal died to get money back into the principal's estate that the agent took inappropriately while yeah. the principal was still alive. Yeah, I've, thank goodness, not had any personal experience with this, but have definitely read of that power of attorney deciding to nominate themselves as a beneficiary on a investment account or the primary home that mom's living in, selling it to themselves for a dollar. How can you safeguard against this? If I think about myself in maybe 40, 45 years from now, starting to suffer from potentially dementia, I'm not the one who's going to be catching this. How can you safeguard against something? Do you name two powers of attorney? I don't know. It's a really good question. It's one our clients ask very, very frequently. The first step begins with the selection of the agent. If you have the right agent and it's somebody you trust, then that goes a long way towards alleviating concerns. But let's say you do want some level of oversight because, as you said a moment ago, the agent's going to be using the power of attorney when I can't oversee what they're doing. So what New York law provides is an appointment of a monitor. So when you sign your power of attorney and you appoint person A as your agent, you can also appoint person B as your monitor. So what does a monitor do? A monitor is somebody separate from the agent. The monitor is not somebody who is going to be paying your bills or giving mm -hmm. instructions to a financial institution. The limited role of the monitor is to oversee the agent. And they have the legal authority to request, receive, and if necessary, compel the agent in court to provide all records and receipts of the transactions the agent performed on your behalf. So it provides another informal level of oversight of the agent. If a client thinks, you know why, I think this person would be a very loyal and good agent. You know what? I still would like my attorney or my accountant or my financial advisor to have, you know, an oversight role and to blow the whistle if the agent steps out of line, then that's something you can do to provide some assurance and a safeguard. It's funny, Brian, as you were talking, I kept on getting a picture of a school traffic guard. I live in New York City and they have school traffic guards that are on the West Side Highway. It's a very, very, very busy road. And a lot of the kids take the subway and have to cross that road. And that school traffic guard, I mean, she, because I've only seen a woman hold this position, you do not want to mess with her. Number one, the cars do not want to mess with her and they definitely listen to her and the kids do. And they are walking across that street. They are not looking at their phones. They're doing everything right. And I almost feel like it's a school traffic guard there that's protecting. And I've seen this in action. Boy, this was a long time ago. It's actually... I think I had only been practicing maybe four or five years. I was brought into a case to manage the assets of the estate. And it was taken away from the current advisor because the current advisor didn't realize, was not paying attention that the child, there were three children that had roles in the estate. And one of them was using the money for a really nice wardrobe. And when I say really nice wardrobe to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Brian, I was very nervous about even getting involved because just being part of anything where people have been naughty scared me. But it really showed me how having a monitor come in to really review this caught it, which was good, number one. But unfortunately, the damage had been done. But the good news is, is that that 
daughter had to refund all of that money back to the estate. Not the best story, but at least it was caught. I want to ask a question. We touched upon it a little bit, but can you have more than one power of attorney? Do you recommend that or not really? You can. The law in New York does allow a principal to appoint two or more people to act as agent. Whether or not that's a good idea depends on the circumstances of each family. So, for example, to take your your rather typical scenario of uh, mom and two children, that son and daughter get along very well. Maybe the son is in New York with mom, the daughter's in California. It may make good sense to appoint the son as the primary agent and name the daughter as the alternate. But let's say son needs to fly out of town and is out of pocket for maybe weeks or months at a time. Then in that instance, if the son and daughter get along very well, then appoint them both as co-agents and they would act together. But if they are not getting along, then it (laughs) makes no sense to appoint, even out of the fear or concern that you may hurt one child's feelings. The whole idea of having power of attorney is to allow for a seamless handling of your financial affairs when you're not able to do so. It's just a recipe for disaster if you put people who can't time a day together to exercise judgment and discretion together. Yeah, no, that's like a recipe for disaster. So you had just talked about like co-power of attorneys, but you had talked about a contingent power of attorney. So co-power attorneys, they're acting together. They have similar powers working together. How is a contingent power of attorney different? In that instance, the principal would name a primary agent. It's always good practice to name at least one successor or contingent or alternate agent. We don't know what's going to happen to ourselves. We have no greater insight as to what's going to happen to our primary agent. So if the primary agent has circumstance where they can't act, then you want to make sure that the document you put into place will be implemented and that the successor or alternate can jump in. That could come about if the agent is called upon to act and says, you know what, I don't want to do this, the successor could step in. Or the agent, while acting for a period of time, may say, you know what, whatever reason I need to step down. Again, there's somebody yeah. there at the back of. You know, it's interesting. I think about the conversation my husband and I had about guardians for our children. And my kids are now 14 and 17. So that conversation isn't as urgent as less when they were like one and four. But we had a guardian named and then we actually had also a contingent. So should you be talking to the person you have listed as the power of attorney and letting them know? Because I can imagine if you're not doing that, someone could be surprised and not want to serve. And maybe that's not their cup of tea. And we did that with the guardians too. We spoke to say, is this okay with you that, you know, we're going to land Sebastian and Samantha and you've got a handful with them coming to you. Are you okay with it? I imagine that's a good conversation to have with your power of attorney too. Absolutely. You want to make sure they're up for the task. And beyond that, you want to make sure they have some insight into what you would like them to do. So for example, if somebody who is your sibling and you're close with them, they may have a very full command without you having to explain to them what your wishes and desires are. But if it's somebody who who may not have that same level of insight based upon the relationship you have, you want to have that conversation with them. So for example, your power of attorney may provide for gifting to your children. What does that mean? Does that mean a gift when they graduate high school, college, or a wedding? 
what does it mean the annual exclusion amount every year? Are you concerned that if you give them the annual exclusion amount every year that they may be less incentivized to work as a job? Yeah, definitely a good conversation to have with your power of attorney. And it can be a lot of work. So the question I have, I mean, is there compensation for a power of attorney? I know for like an executor in some states, you can receive compensation. But what about for a power of attorney? The New York law was changed in 2009. And as of 2009, an agent may receive compensation only if the principal specifically directs so in the power of attorney instrument. As of 2009, there needs to be an express authorization on yeah. the principal. Now, as you said, it could be a lot of work. And you want the agent to do the work because you don't want the alternative, which is a guardianship proceeding. So what you want to do is if you believe it's somebody who will only do the task if they are compensated, have a discussion with your attorney about what the appropriate compensation is. And Stacey, you alluded to an executor and their compensation, which is at least under New York law, keyed to the size of the estate. And that may be one way to go with a power of attorney. But as we see in our trust and estates practice, the size of the trust of the estate, although it's keyed to the compensation, the fiduciary, it may not be commensurate with the work. This could be windfall for the executor or trustee. Or alternatively, it could be far short of the work, the fair value of the work they're doing. So an alternative rather than to draw an analogy to the compensation statute for a trustee or an executor is to put a formula into the power of attorney that the principal can, can fashion himself or herself. And it could be an hourly rate set based on the hours performed. Then, you know, maybe that might be an instance, Stacy, where it might be good to have a monitor involved. Yeah, that's uh, what actually was that's just the game. Yeah, like, and then you've got the monitor. Exactly. <laughs> it took are, you are they, two hours they, uh... to write the bill to Amex? Really? <laughs> Exactly. Are you sure? How long does it take to change a pillowcase? I know, I know, and all of that. Wow, interesting. So let's say you don't do a power of attorney and you have dementia. You don't feel like you have dementia, but boy, your children are really worried about you and telling you that. What happens if you don't have a power of attorney in that situation? This is going to be a lesson on why everybody should have a power of attorney as part of their estate plan. So in your hypothetical, you have dementia, your bills are accruing because you forgot to pay them. And maybe other property matters are being neglected because you're not able to attend to them. And if you name your son or your daughter as your agent, they can step in rather seamlessly and go to the Mm -hmm. bank, go to the Vanguard, wherever your IRA may be, any institution, and take control. Make sure that the RMDs are being kicked out, making sure that there's enough money in the checking account from the savings account to cover your monthly automatic debits. So if you don't have somebody who does that, what you need to do, unfortunately, is go to the court and get a guardianship. And what that entails is to continue our hypothetical, one or both of your children going to court and saying, mom has these inabilities to handle her affairs. And that petition to the court is going to have to get rather specific. Because that court is being asked to take away certain fundamental rights that Stacy enjoys, her, her ability to handle her finances and perhaps even her ability to direct medical care. So that petition is going to have to spell out things about Stacy that Stacy may not want a stranger or strangers to hear about. Then once that petition is filed, there's going to be somebody appointed by the court to go out and investigate. 
is what Stacy's son or daughter asking this court to do, is it warranted? There needs to be some factual investigation. A lawyer may be appointed for you because, it, once again, we're, the court's being asked to... Yep, to represent me. And as you're saying this, Brian, I'm just seeing dollar signs. Exactly. Is that right? I mean, is That's this... Exactly I right. imagine that it can be a large legal cost for this in addition to, like, absolutely demoralizing to the person who is being told, you are not competent any longer. You cannot make financial decisions for yourself any longer. That's it. So we're going to have someone do it for you. That's right. I mean, the expense is exponentially greater than any investment that you would have in an attorney to do the form in advance. Moreover, let's say, for whatever reason, continuing my earlier hypothetical, your son is in New York, but your daughter's in California. So you think it's probably better to have your son the person who takes care of your finances. Maybe he's the one who files a petition to become mom's guardian. And your daughter says, well, wait a minute. Why him? Why not me? And now what you've just done is you put your kids in an adversarial stance. No, that's right? not good. Not good. By, by the advanced directive. Yeah. And you know this better than I do, but the form and the documentation for a power of attorney, it's not hard. It's not expensive. It's really a must have. Any other important advice before we close up? Anything else that we missed or any other last key kind of parting words of advice after we just scared everyone, which I think is good <laughs> because sometimes my children, I threaten them. I find by the third time I've told my son, walk the dogs and he refuses it. If I threaten him to say, you know what, you're not going to see your girlfriend if you're not careful, he's immediately out the door. So I think in some ways it does work, but any other words of advice that you have? In closing, one key point of advice is, let's say you are acting as agent for a loved one or a client. It's not just mom, dad, or grandma. Let's say it's a client and you're acting as their agent. No matter in what role, whether it's familial or professional, you as an agent are every bit a fiduciary as an executor administering an estate or a trustee administering a trust. So what that means is not only must you act in the principal's best interest, you have to keep the principal's assets separate from your own, but you okay. also have to make sure you keep meticulous records. Got it. Yeah. Because there is a possibility that, although it may be perceived as simply a bill-paying role, an agent acting under a power of attorney could be called upon to account in court for what that agent did. And if you don't have the records because you threw them out or you never kept them in the first instance, the law says that if a fiduciary can't produce records as to what the fiduciary did, all doubts are resolved against that fiduciary. Ouch, that's a tough place to be in if you don't yeah. need to keep records. So if you assume the task of being an agent for somebody, make sure you keep records and make sure that when the principal dies, that you are released appropriately by the principal's estate before you do anything with those records. Yeah, that's where being organized is a must-have, not a nice-to-have. Thank you so much, Brian. How can our listeners reach out to you? What is the best way to reach out to you? And feel free to share whatever that might be, whether it's email, website. What does that look like? Sure. I am a partner at Farrell Fritz in New York City and Long Island. My contact information by email is B-C-O-R-R-I-G-A-N at farrellfritz.com. Or you can just go on the Farrell Fritz website and my bio and all my contact information can be found there. That's great. And for all of you listening, we'll make sure that we put that in show notes. I know that you're based in New York, both the city as well as Long Island. 
are you able to help others in other states or even be able to direct them in the right area for someone that could help them with their power of attorney questions and needs? Unfortunately, I'm licensed only in New York, so therefore my ability to give legal advice is limited to New York. But I am a member of the American College of Trust and Estates Council, and through that organization, I have made several acquaintances with sound professionals in other jurisdictions who I routinely refer matters to that I can't handle. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for coming today and sharing kind of some scary stories, but important stories about power of attorney and the important advice that all of our listeners need to have. I really appreciate you joining us here at Financially Ever After. Thank you, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. There are so many issues to think about when you have lost a loved one, and one of them is making sure that your financial affairs are in order and protected by a power of attorney. While making sure that you have that power of attorney in place, make sure that you also review all of your financial assets, liabilities, expenses, and income. This is paramount to make sure that you are on financial track to a long-term financially secure future. If you have any questions, I want you to reach out to me because this is what we do and it's what we do best. You can reach me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at FrancisFinancial.com. Or you can go to our fantastic website, www.francisfinancial.com. We are here for you, and our superpower is helping individuals like you who are on their own, needing to make good financial decisions, and want a teammate to make sure that they're doing exactly just that. Thank you again for joining us for Financially Ever After Widowhood, and we'll see you in two weeks. Thank you for tuning in to Financially Ever After Widowhood. If there's a question you'd love for us to answer on the podcast, we can do that for you. All you have to do is give us a call and the number is 347-682-5580. Let me say that again, 347-682-5580. Whether you're working with an advisor or you're maybe doing it on your own, we invite you to reach out to us at www.francisfinancial.com or you can email me at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y, at FrancisFinancial.com. Our hope is to be a resource for you to help you also find a great financial advisor, whether that be with our firm or one of our trusted colleagues. Please be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and join us next time on Financially Ever After Widowhood.